Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Today we're going to continue um, our series called Power. It's week number four of our series. We are still in Acts chapter 2. We're journeying through Acts together as a church. We're in Acts 2, and we're in the same place we were last week, and we'll be in the same place again next week. So get comfortable in Acts 2 verses 1 through 4. We're taking sort of a different, a differing view of these four verses that talk about the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. Now, Pentecost, as we've mentioned before, is a Jewish feast or festival. It's a pretty important one. So there are, at this moment in Acts 2, Jews from all over the region have gathered to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Pentecost. So it's 50 days after the Passover, which is kind of one of their big uh, holidays that they celebrate. And it's also 10 days after Jesus gave his final instructions to his followers. So in Acts 1, 10 days before the day of Pentecost, Jesus is with his followers one last time, and he says, go to Jerusalem and wait there until you are given power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses all over the world. So 10 days pass, and they're here in Acts chapter 2. Now, there are lots of people gathered in Jerusalem. The city is packed to the gills. It is full of people. But in Acts 2 verse 1, there's one more person that decides to make an entrance. Let's read this. We read it last week. We'll read it again next week. Let's look at it here again. Acts 2, 1 through 4. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability." We read this last week, we'll read it again next week, and we're reading it here today to look at these three main phenomena that happen on the day of Pentecost, the three, thing, the three attention getters here. And so last week, uh, we looked at the idea of fire, and we made some parallels to the Old Testament. So the fire comes and, and sits on each one of the people present. We looked at how that, what that might mean based on the Old Testament use of fire. Next week, we'll look at the final one that's mentioned, and that is this ability that these people had uh, to speak in other languages or in tongues. So next week, you're not going to want to miss that. Right? It's going to get really Pentecostal up in here next week. We'll at least explain what that is. Maybe you have, have heard about tongues before. You don't know what that is. Maybe you've heard about it and it freaked you out. Maybe you're kind of, uh, so we're going to see what we can learn about that next week. So don't miss that. But today, we're going to look at really the first of these three phenomena that are listed, and that is this wind. So what you notice is it says it's the sound of a violent windstorm. So it doesn't say an actual wind swept through the room. I think that's interesting, and I don't know what to make of that. I don't think most scholars know what to make of that specifically, but it's just the sound of a windstorm. So think about, um, anybody ever been in a tornado, or you've been really close to one, so you know what that sounds like? 
it's a freight train. It's like in downtown Parkville, Kennedy takes guitar, or she used to take guitar lessons, now she takes piano lessons down there at Bentley's. And so every once in a while during her practice, a train will come right by, and it's right by the tracks. And it is loud. I'm like, how is she knowing what to play? <laughs> you know, it's not a soundproof room. So what, how is this? It's sort of that, that sound filled their ears. That sound filled the room of a violent windstorm. So we're going to look, as we did last week, at the idea of wind, but we're going to look at these parallels of wind from the Old Testament. And really what we're going to do is we're going to look at two words, two parallels, and then make two observations. That's kind of the order. We're going to look at two words from the Bible that have to deal with wind to set us up for these parallels from the Old Testament, and then we'll make a couple of observations um, about it. So we're looking at these parallels of power, and today is the parallel of wind. So Acts 2 is all about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So there are two words, two main key words in the Bible, one Old Testament word in Hebrew and one New Testament word in Greek, because the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the language, and the New Testament mainly in Greek. There's a word in each that means spirit. Let's look at them for a second. So the Hebrew word is this word ruach. So if you ever need to get like phlegm stuck from your throat, learn some Hebrew. If you learn Hebrew, it'll really help. Okay, ruach is the word spirit in the Old Testament in Hebrew. The Greek word here that we read in Acts all the way through is this word pneuma. It's the Greek word for spirit. But as you probably know, even in our language, sometimes one word can have multiple meanings, right? And so like the word run, for instance. So the word run, you can say, well, it's a physical activity that's faster than walking. That's a definition of run. Or you can use it in terms of someone who, like a boss, runs the company, they're in charge of something. It's the same word, but a different meaning. Uh, or that's what you call a point in baseball. It's not a point. It's a run. When a runner uh, on the bases crosses home plate, they score a run. So one word means those three things and dozens more, but those are just some examples. It's the same with ancient languages or biblical languages. It's the same with translating these biblical words. There are words in these languages that will mean several words in our language. So, for instance, these two words mean more than just one thing. We've already seen it here in Acts 2. We'll see it in the, in the Old Testament as well. So these same words, ruach and pneuma, mean spirit, yes, but they also mean wind and breath. Same word in each language means all three of these things. They all tie in together. And we already saw it. So the Holy Spirit, it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.4. That's the word pneuma. But when the wind comes in in verse 2, it's pneuma. It's a different form of the same root word, pneuma, spirit, is wind, spirit, and breath. So with that in mind, let's look at these two parallels here from the Old Testament um, about wind, breath, and spirit, and relate it to Acts chapter 2. So we did this last week with fire, and there was a lot of back and forth, back and forth. Hopefully it wasn't too convoluted for you. This week should be much easier. Just two parallels from two stories, and that'll get us moving forward here in Acts chapter 2. The first one we'll look at, we'll read a bit of a lengthy passage from the prophet Ezekiel from the Old Testament. And uh, we'll talk about what he's experiencing here in this chapter after we read it. It's probably the most famous, I would say, part of Ezekiel is chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. It's this vision that Ezekiel has of a valley of dry bones. And it relates, uh, there's a parallel here to Acts 2. So let's read this vision in full. It's 14 verses, so it's a little bit longer than what we usually read at one time. But just to get the whole scope of the whole thing, let's read this together and make a parallel to Acts 2. So Ezekiel 37, verse 1. 
The Lord took hold of me. It's the Ezekiel writing here in the first person. The Lord took hold of me, and I was carried away by the Spirit, or Ruach, right there it is, of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he asked me, Son of man, can these bones become living people again? O sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I spoke this message just as he told me. Suddenly, as I spoke, there was a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. Then I watched muscles and flesh formed over the bones. Then skin formed to cover their bodies, but they still had no breath in them. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to the winds, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath from the four winds. Breathe into these dead bodies so they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies. They all came to life and stood upon their feet, a great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, we've become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore, prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, O my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live again and return home to your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. So in this prophecy, we see all three of these words used. Spirit, wind, and breath are all used, and they're all the same Hebrew word. It's all the same, ruach. All these three words in English are the same Hebrew word there, okay? So let's look at, it's sort of explained near the end of the prophecy, but let's look at the immediate context very quickly before we make the parallel, the jump uh, several hundred years to Acts chapter 2. So Ezekiel is a prophet living in Judah, the southern kingdom really of Israel, during the Babylonian exile. And so what, what he sees here is this valley of dry bones. Now, bones means that at one time there was life. There was a body that was alive, that had purpose, that was doing stuff. So it's the same here with Israel. At one time, they were a prosperous nation. They were blessed by God. They were doing great. But now they are a valley of dry bones as a nation. They have been captured and taken into exile in Babylon, one of the great powers of that day. They are not their own free people. They can't worship freely. They can't live freely. It's almost like Egypt all over again for them in many ways. And so what they're dealing with, what they're wrestling with is we're finished we're done. Like we had it great. We abandoned God's way. God's now abandoned us. And here we are. We have no hope. We have no future. This is pointless. Woe is us. That's their mindset. And God knows this. And so God uses Ezekiel here in this valley of dry bones to ask this question. Can these bones live again? What he's saying is, can this nation live again? 
Can it exist as it once did? And Ezekiel says, well, Lord, you know. But God tells him, these broken, dusty, dingy bones in the sand can live again. This nation that has fallen far from me, that is in exile, that is being punished, they can live again. But how does that happen? God says, only by my spirit can they live again. Only by my ruach, my breath breathing into them, can they live again. Only by the wind of the spirit making them live again can they live again. That's what God says to Judah here. He says, right now you are dead. Right now you are a valley of dry bones. There is no breath, there is no life, there is no spirit in you, but my spirit will bring you back to life. So here's a parallel, I think. So we're going to kind of do a flip-flop. So this is a broad uh, uh, prophecy here that we're going to make sort of personal, and then the second illustration will be a personal thing that we'll make broad. So we're kind of flip-flopping here, but here's a parallel from, for Acts 2, I think, from Ezekiel 37. So think about the people in this room in Acts 2. There's 120 or so, 130 maybe, uh, followers of Jesus in this room. And in many ways, spiritually, emotionally, they feel much like Judah did in Ezekiel's day. So many of these people feel like lost and confused. They've been with Jesus for so long. They've known a certain way of life, and now they're on their own. They're like, okay, what do we do now? What's our direction now? What's the plan now? Like the only thing we know is to sit here and wait until the Holy Spirit comes. That's good and all, but after that, what do we do? What does that even mean? How long are we supposed to wait? So there, there's some confusion, there's some uncertainty, just like there would have been in Judah in Ezekiel's day. But then the wind of the Holy Spirit, the sound of the wind, enters this room to tell them, I'm your direction. I'm your purpose. I'm your power that you need to sustain you for what is ahead. You don't know what's coming. Yes, you are uncertain, but the Holy Spirit's never uncertain. And he's come in in this wind to remind you that you don't have to have everything figured out because the Holy Spirit will lead you where he wants you to go. On top of that, these people in this room are absolutely not qualified to run anything, let alone what Jesus started. They have no qualifications whatsoever. There's not one rabbi. There's not one scribe. There's not a priest in the group. They are all, as we'll read later in a couple chapters, they are unlearned fishermen. They are untrained carpenters. They don't, I mean, they've already tried to do the, like, so these young men would have done the same training every rabbi does, but they didn't quite make the cut to become a rabbi. So since the time they've been 12 or 13, they've been losers. They're nobodies. They don't know enough. They can't memorize enough. They're not good enough. And, and this is who Jesus leaves in charge. They don't feel like they can do this. They're unqualified. How are we going to do what Jesus did, they're going to ask. Just like Judas said, how are we going to ever overcome this exile? The people here in the book of Acts chapter 2, how can we carry on the work that Jesus did when we can't even teach a class at our local synagogue? Like What qualifies us to do anything? But the wind of the Holy Spirit comes in on the day of Pentecost to say, I'm your qualification. I'm your power. You can carry on the work that Jesus started because of me. That's all they needed. And then, even on top of that, there are some in the room who feel like total washed-up failures. 
Think about it. 11 of the 12 original disciples are in this room. All but one of them, in Jesus' greatest moment of need, ran away from him, abandoned him, left him on his own to suffer, to be beaten, to be crucified, except for John. He's the only one who stuck around at all. We know he's at least at the cross, at the crucifixion there, because Jesus talks to him briefly. But the rest of them run away. They're scared. And so now they're here in this room, and they're like, they, they don't feel very good probably in the moment. Like they feel like, what's God going to do with me now? Like I ran when Jesus needed me. What am I doing here? Think, and especially Peter. It's fascinating that Peter becomes the leader of this group because of all of them, he's, he's the most washed up failure. Like not, he followed Jesus kind of afar off the night after he's arrested, but in that moment, what he, he denies even knowing him multiple times. And so he's here in this room. He's got these doubts. He's got these insecurities. He, he knows he's a failure. He knows he's messed up maybe beyond repair. But the spirit, the wind comes, I think, to really ask the same question in that moment that God asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? The, the wind of the spirit, the, the sound of the wind enters that room, and Peter has this moment. What am I going to do in this moment? Am I going to sit here in my doubt in my failure, in my not good enoughness, and not do anything? Or am I going to let the Holy Spirit empower me to do what I can't do anyway? The wind of the Holy Spirit comes in and says, I'm your new life. I'm your second chance. I'm the plan. I'm the plan, and I have a plan for you. I have something bigger in mind for you than you could ever imagine. Because all you see yourself as, Peter, James, any of the other people in the room, is a failure, a fraud, someone who turned their back on Jesus, someone who maybe thought they were a strong believer and maybe they turned out they weren't so much. The Holy Spirit, the wind comes in, I think, to remind them that all they need is the power of the Holy Spirit. That's all they need. And maybe you can relate to how these people in this room may have felt that day. You ever felt lost or confused in life? lost and confused spiritually, even as a Christian, lost and confused. Well, if you have, you're in good company because you don't need all the answers. This is something I have to tell myself all the time as a pastor. I don't need all the answers. I get asked a lot of questions. I don't have to have all the answers because the Holy Spirit is, is all the answer that really deep down that I need. He's the only uh, thing when I feel lost or confused. He's my direction. What we need is the wind of the Holy Spirit to be all that we need, to be our direction. Maybe like these apostles, disciples, followers in Acts 2, maybe you feel unqualified. Even just to live for Jesus. Like, I, I don't know anything. I don't have an education. I'm not a very good reader, so the Bible's tough for me. I have a hard time remembering, memorizing scripture. I have a hard, you know, whatever. You feel unqualified. I can't do anything like what they did in the Bible. And so maybe you feel unqualified. Join the club. Okay? People in the Bible, unqualified. Pastor preaching right now, unqualified. Okay? That, that's the whole point here. And it's kind of, maybe you've heard this before, and it's kind of a corny saying, but I think it's true. Jesus doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. That's good news for us. He's not looking at your resume, 
You know, saying, you know, you know how resumes, you're looking for like an entry-level job, but you have 10 years of experience required to get the job. Isn't that frustrating? That's not how Christian, the Christian faith works. That's not how a life in the Spirit works. He's not looking to say, well, you didn't go to Bible college, or you haven't read the Bible, or you, you know, you've only been a Christian for a few months, so no, 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 you can't do this thing. That's not how this works at all. Another part of this is, too, this hit me this week, re- I mean, really strongly, and so I hope it means something. Maybe it's just for me, but may- if it's for you, then here it is. When it comes to our qualifications and experience, here's, here's what I've, I'm learning. God doesn't need my experience. I need to experience God, right? God doesn't need your experience. You need to experience God. That's what Acts 2 shows us. These aren't professional Christians in Acts 2. These aren't even semi-pro. They're like A-ball. They're like barely making the minor leagues to travel on a bus to go from town to town, barely making enough money to survive if you're looking at a baseball analogy here, okay? So they, they have no experience, no qualifications, yet God uses them, and the same is true for us. All we need is the wind of the Holy Spirit to be our confidence, to be our power, to be everything that we need. Maybe you're on that bottom rung where Peter was, and you just feel like a failure, you look at your life and you keep, you've made so many mistakes and you still struggle with sin. You're like, there's no way that God is going to ever do anything with me or through me, right? Maybe you're like that. You've messed up too many times. You even think, well, who am I to even think that God can use me to do what he wants? And I'll tell you who you are. You're exactly who God is looking for. Because we're all he's got to work with. There's nobody else. It's us or it's no one. So it might as well be us. So maybe you feel like a failure, but what you need then is the wind of the Holy Spirit to come into your life to remind you that God still has a plan for your life. There is no one that's done too many things that is too bad for too long that God still can't miraculously use them for his purposes. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. These bones can live again. Your life still does have value, purpose, and meaning if you will allow the power of the Holy Spirit, the wind of the Holy Spirit, the breath of the Holy Spirit to infuse you with new life. That's good news that we see from from Ezekiel and then from Acts 2. Here's the second parallel uh, to wind, and we're going to go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible for this second parallel, all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. So we see the first five days of creation in Genesis 1, but there's still one more thing that God hasn't done yet. He's, not gotten, he's waiting around for the perfect time, I guess. And so in Act, or Genesis uh, 1.26, here's what happens. Day 6 of creation. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. But there's an important detail in this synopsis of creation from, from, I keep saying Acts. Acts is on the brain, guys, okay? Genesis 1, there's an important detail here that we don't see until Genesis chapter 2. So you look at Genesis 1 and 2, and sometimes we're confused, like, why, is there, why are there two creation stories? Why is he repeating himself? Or why are there details that aren't the same? Really, Genesis 1 is an overview of everything. And really what I see here, Genesis 2 is mainly a zoomed-in, slowed-down view of day 6 of creation. Focuses mainly on, on man here in Genesis 2. So we saw God made man in his image, right? But there's an important thing, this word that we will probably look at, 
uh, from Genesis 2 that it's very important here. So Genesis 2, verse 7, same idea as Genesis 1, but this detail is very important. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. So I know I said we were looking at two words, but this word's actually a little bit different word. So the word um, for basically spirit and breath both here in Genesis 2 is neshama, another Hebrew word, but it's the same as really as ruach there. There's sort of two words with the same different meanings there to make things really muddy for you for a second. So here's, here's a very quick parallel then to, from Genesis 2 to Acts 2. So in Genesis 2, God gives breath and life to a brand new thing, man, humans. In Acts 2, the wind of the Spirit signifies God giving life to this new thing that is called the church. Again, we're going from the personal in, in Genesis to the, the bigger picture in Acts 2, but I think the, the parallel still goes. That just like God breathed breath into a brand new creature, man, in Acts 2, the wind breathes new life into a brand new thing called the church, this new movement. Now, to be fair, it took maybe a couple hundred years for this new life form to figure out what it was, kind of like a baby, you know? It takes it about a year to figure out how to walk and how to keep balance and all that sort of thing. It takes even longer to, for that baby to mature and, you know, to become an adult, and some of us still haven't figured that out yet, um, how to, you know, mature and be an adult. Um, <clears throat> So the church was much the same way. They had, they had the form, they had the breath of God in Acts 2, but then it took really a couple hundred years then to figure out what exactly are we, like, are we Judaism? Are we Judaism light? Are we Judaism 2.0? Are we a brand new thing? But really, um, there was some maturation quickly because really in the first generation, you see this in the book of Acts, um, they, there was this separation from Judaism and then it further separated into really what Christianity is today. But within the first generation of the book of Acts, a lot of key differences pop up. So, for instance, in this new movement, the church, there's no more circumcision requirement for males. There's no more dietary restrictions for people to live the life of Jesus. Uh, the movement's extended to Gentiles or non-Jews. That's kind of a new thing. That's, not, that's definitely not Judaism. So it's a different thing altogether. And really the most obvious difference, the central belief, is faith in Jesus Christ. That's the main thing that sets it apart, that over time became more and more and more of a separator between these two, uh, between, the, between Judaism and the church. But this parallel sign of wind here, again, it get, it's, it's life, meaning, and power to the church. And it was the same Spirit that gave everything life. So the same Holy Spirit in Genesis 2, giving physical life to humans, the same Spirit of God in Ezekiel 37 in this figurative way, giving life through its breath to these bones, is the same Holy Spirit that arrives in Acts 2 to give this new life to this new movement that is the church. It gives it its power, its life force. And I'll say this, we'll, we'll talk about this for just a couple minutes here. The church today needs the same life from the same spirit. The church needs this today. I want you to notice, I, I kind of hinted at it a second ago, I want you to notice a distinction here in both Ezekiel and Genesis between form and substance. There's a difference here. So, in Ezekiel 37... The first prophecy from Ezekiel forms the bones from the ground to a full skeleton with muscles and skin. 
And then when you look at Genesis 2-7, the first half of that verse says, God formed man from the dust of the earth. But in both cases, Ezekiel had to make a second prophecy to the breath, to the wind, to the spirit, to give that form substance, to give life to the body. In the same way, Genesis 2-7, God formed man in the dust, but then he had to breathe breath into him to make him come to life. There's two parts. So, the form in Ezekiel is just this body with no life. The form in Genesis is the body in the dirt with no life. The substance is the Spirit of God, breathing life and breath into those. So, why do I, why do I say that? Because one reason... Uh, that I think many churches struggle and die is for lack of the breath, the wind, and the Spirit of God. So church, even some churches that are operational are not alive because there's no Spirit of God in those churches. Um, and, and let me give you some reasons why. And this is, we can all fit into any one of these categories, but here's some things to maybe look for. Sometimes churches do that because they're focused on politics instead of scripture. They focus on, the people in the churches focus on their personal preferences other than contributing to the mission of the church. Churches can focus on programs instead of people. I've been there in some of those categories before. It can happen. It's easy. It's easy to have the form, but no substance. It looks like we're doing stuff. We're busy, we're active, but we're not really accomplishing a whole lot of anything because there's no breath, wind, spirit of God in those things. The illustration that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12 is that the church is the body of Christ. But if the body's going to be alive, it's got to have the breath of God flowing through it, infusing it with power to be alive. Otherwise, many churches today then are not the body of Christ, they're the zombie of Christ. Okay? The living dead. There are so many churches that fit that description. There are zombies because the, the breath of God that makes all the difference is not present. So my, my prayer is that may this never be said of first century church. So my prayer is that we would continue to allow the Holy Spirit to breathe his breath into our corporate lungs to give us life and purpose to make a difference. May first century continue to allow the wind of the Holy Spirit to blow in our sails and direct us where he wants us to go. We'll talk more about that in a second too. Now, as churches grow and as they become more established, there are logistical changes that need to be made to continue growth, the growth of a church. And I, I understand that. That's a balance that I'm I have to weigh out regularly is what are the practical things that we need to do to continue to develop and grow and mature and be healthy? And then how do we at the same time lean into the spirit of God to help us to direct what that looks like? So there, there, there are the structural things, there are the organizational things, but it's not just that. That's the form. That's good. It's fine. But we need the wind of God, the breath of God, the spirit of God to give us life. So those are the two parallels from the Old Testament. So from that, let's look at two oblig or obligations, well, maybe, <laughs> observations then about the wind, about these parallels. So again, in Acts 2, it's the sound of a violent windstorm, tornadic F5 winds, the sound of a freight train going in this room to these people. That's how the, the Holy Spirit enters this room on the day of Pentecost. But I want you to notice two things about what this violent wind does. First, it brought order, not chaos. 
Normally, a violent wind brings chaos, doesn't it? It just tosses everything around, and this house is now over there, and these cows are now over here, and you know, whatever else, and things just getting destroyed with violent winds. Trees over, power lines down, but the wind of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, although it is a violent wind, it brought order, not chaos. So this new movement, again, like we said, they did have things to figure out. They got, it was messy at times for a while. There were some big disagreements. They had some church councils like, what are we doing here? It's out of control. This is crazy. Let's figure it out, right? So there was, there was some chaos there, but the Holy Spirit provided unified vision and direction for this new movement. They knew where to go as the Holy Spirit led them where to go. And so a benefit to that is when something weird happened, they could correct it more easily. When something was off in the church or in the churches, they could more easily say, no, 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 that's not what we're doing here. Paul's a great example of that. The book of 1 Corinthians and really 2 Corinthians is, is a master class on really helping a church figure out how to go from a messy church to a spirit-filled church. Because they, I mean, they're just, there's some crazy stuff going on there. So near the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. Look at this for a second. 1 Corinthians 14 33 and then down to verse 40. So 1433, Paul says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people. Verse 40, be sure that everything is done properly and in order. So in the church in Corinth, or the churches in Corinth, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And Paul writes these as instruction or correction for them to help guide them into really what it probably should look like more. Um, and he, he does this near the end of his first letter to kind of sum up, hey, the reason I'm correcting you on these things that are off is to tell you God doesn't operate this way. So sometimes things would happen. So maybe there's a pastor who's up there preaching. All of a sudden, someone gets up and starts speaking in tongues, and then somebody else starts giving a prophecy all at the same time. That's disorder. That's not, that's not, what, Paul's, that's not what happens. The violent wind doesn't mess things up to make it unintelligible what's going on. So Paul corrects those things, and he comes back at the end and says, God is not a God of disorder. This violent wind brings order, not chaos. And I'll tell you, I mean, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and I've seen some stuff, all right? I've been in some meetings where it's like borderline, okay, would Paul be happy with what's going on here? I don't know. There are some things I've been a part of, and I'm almost 100% sure Paul would be writing them a letter, right? There's a letter coming that church's way because that it's chaotic. It is not flowing. How it, it's just obvious, right? I could give you some stories, but I don't have time for that. Um, but so part of this is we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't want to bottle him up, but we also we want to give him freedom to move and do what he wants. But again, in a, not in a disordered type of way. But let me give you, I think, a way that kind of translates to us, I think, pretty well as a church here and now. Um, the temptation, even as we've said, as churches grow and mature, is to sometimes get disordered, get chaotic, get too busy, too many things. We have 17,000 ministries for everything under the sun, and nothing gets done. We have all these committees that have meetings, but nothing gets done. We have all these plans and dreams that we want to do, but we don't actually execute them because we're too busy planning and dreaming, and nothing gets done. So that's a temptation even for us moving forward. Let me give you an example. I had an idea for a ministry this week. You want to hear it? Good, because I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> so I decided I want to start a new ministry here at First Century. It is for divorced men who are between the ages of 30 and 35 who are left-handed and own a lizard, okay? I'm going to call it the Left Alone Lefty Lizard Ministry. 
That sounds ridiculous, but there are many churches that get so bogged down. I want to do this specific ministry. Okay, maybe God's calling you to do that as a missional person and not give the church more things to do that have to have more volunteers, more management, more time, more commitment, all that kind of stuff. So, but churches, again, the, the older they get, the more established they get, the larger they get. There's a temptation then, but I would say that's chaos. That's disorder, and that's not really what God has in mind here in Acts 2. And this is why I think our core values are so important, because I believe the Holy Spirit directed us to have these core values, to think about what we're to do in a very specific way, and as needs arise, if they fit into what the Holy Spirit's directed us thus far, then we'll go with that. If it fits, but if it's something that's maybe for someone else or something else to be done, then we can lovingly hand that uh, left alone, lefty lizard ministry to someone else, okay? It's, it's all me? Uh, I know. It was, my, it was an idea. I was just brainstorming this week, you know? Um, so, again, we want to remain sensitive to the Holy Spirit and be led by the Holy Spirit, even as first century church, but within the direction of where he's leading us as a church to go, to not be chaotic in what we're doing moving forward, to remain effective for that reason. So, the wind, even though it's a violent windstorm, it brought order, not chaos. Here's the second observation about this violent windstorm. It brought order into chaos. So first it brings order, not chaos, but it brought order into chaos. And I have a couple pictures to illustrate what this might look like. So the first picture here um, is, is chaos. I, I there it is. Put your, put your boots on. You know, don't, don't walk through the living room at night with this in the way. So the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 goes from this to this second picture here all at once. A violent windstorm, right? It brought order into the chaos. So that's what we're talking about here in Acts chapter 2. The violent windstorm didn't destroy anything. It actually built something in Acts 2, the church. It didn't bring destruction. It brought construction. So whatever chaos and uncertainty the church did wrestle with for a century or two, still from the day of Pentecost, there was still clarity there was still purpose. There was still unity of purpose in this movement called the church. And what that did on a larger cultural scale was bring order into chaos. So when you look, if you ever read about, you know, ancient cultures or you, you know, watch the History Channel or National Geographic, ancient cultures seem very chaotic compared to our modern culture, I think. I mean, regularly in ancient cultures, leaders are getting assassinated left and right all the time. Be, there are overthrows of governments all the time in ancient cultures, right? Uh, so much confusion. There's always war. There's always bloodshed. There's always conquest. There's always stuff going on. It's moving parts all the time. We don't see that as much anymore in our current culture, but that's how it was in the time of Acts chapter 2. The ancient Roman world was fairly chaotic. You have, you know, Roman leader after Roman leader getting killed, getting killed by their, you know, cousin or their nephew or their uncle or, you know, there's an assassination plot to this guy. It's all that way. Religiously, the Roman culture was chaotic. And there's hundreds of gods that the Romans can worship. And they all have different functions. They all do different things. It's just chaotic. There's a melting pot of ideas. There's all sorts of uh, philosophical schools of thought at war with one another, trying to figure out how the world works. But it's chaotic. And so the church stands apart from this chaotic culture and introduces order into it. That's what the church does. They say, no, no, there's not hundreds of gods. 
There's one of them. And his son Jesus came to earth to get, to get us back to God. That's unique to the culture. Uh, the, the religion of Christianity, if you want to call it, it is a religion, I guess. It's grace-based, not works-based. Well, that's a different, right? That brings order to chaos. This religion, this new religion looks out for, for their fellow man. Well, that's different. Wow, we're going to help each other? We're going to come together as a community of faith? That's not like these other religions in the Roman world. In Christianity, you mean women are equal to men? You mean slaves are equal to their masters in terms of how the church works? That's different. That's, that's like almost ordered, right? That's what they're doing. They're bringing order into chaos. The Holy Spirit-empowered church in Acts brought light into darkness and brought order into chaos. And I would say again that the mission for the church today is exactly the same. Our world today, even though it seems less chaotic in many ways than the ancient world, is out of control. The culture is out of control. The political, socioeconomic situation, out of control. People are broken, they are messed up, they are angry, and they're searching for order in their chaos. And the church is designed to bring that to them, to be that for them, to show, no, Jesus has a better way than what you've tried that doesn't work. Jesus has a better plan than what you've tried that hasn't worked. He wants to bring order into your chaos. He wants to be the end of your search for meaning, for happiness and fulfillment. He wants to bring hope to your hopelessness. He wants to bring peace to your restlessness. He wants to be the answers to the questions that you keep asking and going in circles about. The church is designed to bring order into chaos. That's what we're called to do as a church. But we need the wind, the breath, and the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. The world needs the church, and the church needs the Holy Spirit. The world needs you, and you need the Holy Spirit. So may the breath of the Holy Spirit fill your life to give you power. As a church, may the, wind of the, may the breath of the Holy Spirit fill our corporate lungs to be that powerful agent of change in our culture. May the wind of the Holy Spirit propel you forward into whatever God has for you. As a church, may the wind of the Holy Spirit fill our sails to propel us forward to bring order into chaos. May the power of the Holy Spirit uh, make us able to be different, to make a difference, to lead us into all that God has for us individually and corporately as a church. It's the power, the wind, the breath of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, as we discussed today, we, we need the breath of the Holy Spirit. We look around at our lives, our situations, maybe our past history, and we ask the question that you asked Elijah, can these bones live? The good news is the answer is yes, through your Spirit, by your Spirit. God, we need the wind of the Holy Spirit. What am I to do? How am I to accomplish God's plan for me? We can do that through the wind of the Holy Spirit that gives us direction, insight, wisdom into life. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to be the agents of change to bring order into a chaotic world, a chaotic culture.
They desperately are searching. They're frantically spinning their wheels, getting going out of control, but going nowhere. And we have the greatest message ever shared, the good news of Jesus that brings order into chaos. Help us to lean in to the breath, the wind, and the power of the Holy Spirit to be different and to make a difference in our world. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit's empowerment to do it. And I thank you for this all in Jesus' name. Amen.